All right, well, welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, this is the hardest slot to deal with after lunch. So that's why it's a workshop. And uh, I invite you to sleep away if you need to. Uh, when I read my Bible, it's full of stories of people that God spoke to in their sleep. So um, you, I, you might even... There's times where you might even hear from the Lord clearer by sleeping through certain sermons than trying to uh, trying to get something out of them. But anyways, um, my name is Zach Vesnes. I pastor a church uh, up in Petaluma, California. And if you've never heard of Petaluma, don't feel bad. I had never heard of Petaluma before I moved there. And um, it's just a small uh small little town on the 101 in Sonoma County, kind of on the edge of wine country. Uh, if you were on the Golden Gate Bridge and you went north, uh, about 40 minutes, you'd run into Petaluma. So that's where I'm at. I've been uh, pastoring there for, I've been the senior pastor for 10 years. Um, I started as the senior pastor when I was 24. Um, I know I look a lot older now, but um, <laughs> I... I wouldn't recommend anyone pastor a church at 24, but it's it's what the Lord had in store for me. Um, I actually moved to Petaluma when I was 21 years old to do youth ministry there. And um, and then three years into doing youth ministry, the pastor said, OK, I'm going to go start a church in Wisconsin and you're going to take over. And uh, my wife's words in the meeting with the pastor was, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so... I've, I felt my wife's confidence, and uh, actually, that's about how I felt, too. So um, I, I kind of want to divide this workshop just into two simple, equal parts, um, and, and then we'll go from there. Um, I want to start with my experience, just so that you can get a sense of where I'm coming from and, and what I'm going to share with you, and then the second part... Uh, I'll just talk about what I've learned. And obviously the theme of our time together at this conference is revival. And I've been given uh, the subject of advancing the gospel in hard soil. So again, just sort of as a backdrop or um, a little bit about where I'm coming from, my experience is that I'm a third generation, what I call a third generation Calvary Chapel guy. So Um, How many of you are familiar with Calvary Chapel churches at all? Okay, great, fair amount of you. So what I mean by that is that Calvary Chapel started with this guy named Chuck Smith down in Southern California. He was a four-square pastor, felt restricted by the denomination that he was in, and so he just launched a little community church with about 30 people. And um, as the Jesus movement sort of broke out in the 60s and 70s down in Southern California. Chuck Smith kind of found himself near, if not at the center of uh, what God was doing through the Jesus movement when all these hippies were getting saved. And um, there's some great stories about Chuck Smith, who passed away last year, by the way, and and Calvary Chapel back in those days. Um, But anyways, Chuck started the whole thing, or the thing started with Chuck, and from there... Um, there was a group of guys around Chuck that were coming to Christ, that were feeling a call to ministry that Chuck was sending out that he had a relationship with personally. And um, a lot of those men are still pastoring churches today. 
and uh, God has really blessed their ministries. Um, in fact, there's there's Calvary Chapel churches all over the world today. So I was fortunate, I feel fortunate to have grown up in one of those guys' churches. Uh, he had a church in Southern Oregon, which is where I grew up. His name was John Corson, and he pastored a church uh, kind of as the Jesus movement was trickling out. Um, and this church grew to be six or 7,000 people, which is impressive enough in its own right. But uh, the, the town that he pastored and planted that church in, and this is not a joke, it has a population today of 840 people. So um, it was just incredible what, what God did at this church. And, and I was just a little kid, so I just was growing up in the mid- middle thinking that was normal. And uh, that's just what happens. You plant a church and 6,000 people come, no matter the size of the town or where you're at. And so um, that's that's sort of the environment that I grew up in. Um, and, you know... I was fortunate uh, to discover a book not too long ago uh, entitled God's Forever Family. And the reason that this book was important for me was that it was uh, written by a man named Larry Eskridge, and it was an outsider look at the Jesus movement and, and sort of a, a scholarly uh, look at the Jesus movement. It just, it just confirmed Eskridge's uh, sort of summation of all of that was that The Jesus movement was genuinely a powerful work of the Holy Spirit um, because there was a lot of debate over whether that was just a fad or what it was. In fact, let me just read to you a couple of quotes. He says, uh, this is Eskridge in his book, he says, quote, far from being an ephemeral blip or religious fad, the Jesus people movement was a major episode in American religious history. He goes on to say, for many baby boomers who were involved in the movement, Their experience as part of God's forever family continued decades later to be the benchmark by which they measured their own spirituality and the health of the American church. The memory of the movement or the movement's template still lingers within the evangelical subculture and an enduring hope abides that a new revival, he uses that word revival, might spring up among future generations coming of age within a culture that many believers feel has turned its back on God. And then this is the last quote. He says, This study argues that the Jesus People Movement is one of the most significant American religious phenomena of the post-war period. So it it was helpful, I think, for me, because I didn't live during that time or during that period. I grew up hearing the stories and hearing people say, Man, I wish we could go back to those times. Uh, But for me, it was helpful to have an outsider sort of confirm uh, through real research. In fact, in the back of his book, there's all the criteria that he used for his research uh, that was quite interesting. But um, over the years, and I guess I, I just tell you that history because I want to locate myself in Calvary Chapel's history, uh, again, to sort of give a little background to what I'm going to say. But but over the years, uh, things changed in Calvary Chapel. And uh, from an insider's perspective, what I would attribute that to was uh, the Vineyard Church movement. Because what happened was that during that time of what Eskridge calls revival, this, this incredible outpouring of the Spirit of God during the Jesus movement, there was a group of people within Calvary Chapel that said, hey, we're not content, we want to go even further 
in our exploration and expression of uh, spiritual gifts and whatnot. And, and so Chuck Smith basically said, this is sort of the anecdotal version of it, but he said, hey, that's fine, but you can't do that here because I think you're taking it to an excess that, that uh, doesn't feel biblical. And so that group of people, John Wimber and Lonnie Frisbee and some of those guys took off and they planted uh, churches that began as the Vineyard Church Movement. Now, this isn't a critique of that. It's more just to understand that in Calvary Chapel as a movement, what happened at that point was that a lot of the local churches experienced s- some division. There was sort of a tear in the relationships of those local churches where, where some were going this way and some were going that way. And, and it was a difficult time. And so everything that came out of Calvary Chapel during those years in terms of sermons and books that were being published were warnings about the excesses of uh, the spiritual gifts and things of that nature. And so by the time I was really growing up and coming aware, uh, if you were to go, and I would say this is true today, if you were to go to the average Calvary Chapel, you would not be able to distinguish it, distinguish it from a Baptist church, even though the beliefs of a Calvary Chapel are distinct in practice uh, you wouldn't be able to spot that at all. And and I think it's largely because of a step back from what happened um, during the time when the vineyard churches split off. And so uh, over time, things definitely seemed to cool. Uh, the emphasis of Calvary Chapel became expositional, preaching through the word of God, which is, which is a fantastic heritage. Um, Chuck Smith even wrote a book called Charismatic Versus Charismania. And uh, he was trying again to distinguish and to warn people from excesses that come from the Spirit. And remember, all of these things were a discussion at that point because of what was happening during the Jesus movement in a time uh, of significant revival. And so what I noticed then also in the Calvary Chapel, by the way, this is not a workshop on Calvary Chapel. It's not an endorsement of Calvary Chapel. I will have a point in all this, so just stick with me. Um, don't fear. But uh, over time in Calvary Chapel, I started to notice that people started to ask the wrong kinds of questions. And they started to realize, hey, it doesn't feel like it felt back then. Things feel very different now. And you could say dry or whatever kinds of descriptive words you would want to use. But that's essentially what they were saying. And so they started to ask, uh, what were we doing back then when God poured his spirit out? And, and the thinking behind that question is, if we just go do that again, then God will just, it'll just happen again. Like we, we could have this sort of formula for how it works. And so... You know, guys were saying things like, well, yeah, what were we? Well, we had long hair and we were wearing tie dye and we were hippies and we had Hawaiian shirts. And maybe if we just do that again, uh, God will pour out his spirit again. And um, and so that's that's sort of the environment, the history that I I grew up in and came to the Lord in the midst of um, what happened to me personally. That's going to set up what I want to share with you uh, within the Calvary Chapel movement uh, is that I can remember growing up in this church that went from nothing to 6,000 people in a town of 840 people in the middle of nowhere. And I can remember loving church. I was a pastor's kid, um, but I wasn't your typical pastor's kid, right? The, the reputation that pastor's kids, I loved going to church. I loved being there. 
I, I loved the Lord. I loved worship. I loved the Bible. I just, I loved it. And so much so that when I was 15 years old, I felt called to ministry. I felt a strong desire that that's what I want to do with my life is go into the ministry. And I remember being at a retreat, a youth retreat, where the guy up front was saying, hey, if any of you are feeling called to ministry uh, and and you want to be prayed over um, just to receive the gifting of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit for the ministry that God's called you to, then come forward. And I went forward because I was like, yeah, that's me. And that was a, a very memorable moment for me. It was an experience uh, that I that I actually vividly remember. And from that point, I quit the soccer team that I was on and uh, just decided, you know, I'm going to be in church every time the doors are open because that's what I want to do is I want to serve the Lord. Um, fast forward to the door opening to go into full-time ministry when I was 21, and I thought, yes, this is awesome. I have no formal training, didn't go to seminary, um, didn't finish college. Uh, that's why my bio was so short. In the, in the thing. There's not really, it's not really anything to put. I have four kids. That's my greatest accomplishment. And, uh, and I have a wife that is my greatest accomplishment. Just the fact that she married me is is quite an impressive thing. If you knew her, you would think that. So, um, But I got into ministry at 21, thought I'd do youth ministry for 20 years or something and learn. Um, and then someday, somehow, maybe I'd plant a church or whatever and uh, and pastor a church. That was a desire that I had. But as I said earlier, three years in, uh, the pastor left, said, you're on, you're the senior pastor. And so here I am. I'm, I'm pastoring a church at the age of 24, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, as I got into that pastoral ministry, the first battles that uh, sort of came up in the church were over spiritual gifts. It was over people that wanted to see revival, people that wanted to see an an outpouring of the Spirit of God and and experience that and see the evidence for that. And um, there was a young man, actually, that, um, that was coming to one of the groups, one of our Bible studies, all of our services, and he was just kind of being disruptive. He was trying to heal everybody that he saw, and someone said they had an earache. He'd stick his finger in their ear and just was doing kind of weird stuff. And so um, that was that was kind of a, a, a significant battle that I remember early on in ministry that I had to deal with now because I was the senior pastor. And um, And shortly after that, uh, there was, some of you may remember several years ago, there was a so-called revival in Lakeland, Florida, under uh, the ministry of a man by the name of Todd Bentley. And so there was all these pe- which the guy turned out to be a total kook, if you know uh, who he was. He was the guy that said that the Spirit of God was calling him to kick people in the face in order to heal them, and just doing bizarre, bizarre stuff. And and the problem was that there was, again, some people in the church that I was pastoring that were really enthralled with this. They were like, hey, we're going to go to Lakeland. There's a revival happening. Don't you want revival? And so there they were off. They were going. And um, and so, again, these big battles in the midst of church and learning ministry all over this subject of the Spirit of God and, and the, the way that the Spirit of God works and the evidence of that and revival and all of those kinds of things. And so... Oddly enough, the young man that I mentioned earlier, who ended up leaving our church, um, uh, ended up, I was 
watching Todd Bentley, this whole thing unfolding in Florida, because it was such a battle in my church, I kind of became obsessed with it. And uh, I, I see this young man on stage getting prayed over and commissioned into ministry by Todd Bentley. And so I just thought, how bizarre, <laughs> you know, it's this connection after all these years. But um, those were some of the first battles that I really remember uh, in ministry was over this very subject. And from there, as time went on, you know, I found myself, as I'm sure we all do, uh, desiring to see revival. I want to see God do a reviving work in my church, in my city with these people. I, I've grown up hearing about the Jesus movement, wishing that I was there, realizing I missed it and uh, would love to see God work in that way again. And so it, it seems like... Um, what I did, though, because of all these kooky people in my church, I thought, well, I'm going to get things straight and uh, figure this out. And so I got, you know, every Martin Lloyd-Jones book on revival that I could get. I got uh, some of Ian Murray's books on revival versus revivalism. And I thought, I'm really going to I'm really going to do this the right way. And I started studying it. And what came out of that was uh, actually after I read Jonathan Edwards' humble attempt to promote revivals, of religion through explicit agreement, visible unity, extraordinary prayer. That's the short title of, <laughs> of uh, seriously, the real title is like a paragraph long. But after I read that from Jonathan Edwards, I thought, okay, there's a formula for revival. And, and so it was pretty early on in the ministry. What we did is we, we decided we were going to have 11 days of extraordinary prayer. And we we're going to invite all these other churches because then there would be visible unity, right? There's three things, uh, explicit agreement, visible unity, and extraordinary prayer. And if, if we can get those three things, then we'll have the next great awakening starting right here in Petaluma. So we did 11 days of this where we would have a prayer meeting uh, for at least an hour, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. And then uh, every morning and every night we would have another hour-long prayer meeting. Um, and all my staff, they had to go. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on everybody in the church who wanted revival. They had to go. And um, all I can say is that far from reviving us, it nearly killed us. And I think we're still recovering from those 11 days. It was so exhausting. And, and I think primarily, obviously, looking back, it was exhausting because it was being approached from the standpoint of we can make this happen. I would have never told you that then. Uh, but looking back, I, I know that there was so much of that kind of angst and zeal in me, wanting to see God move, wanting to see God do something, and thinking that if I can just kind of stumble on the right formula or figure out the right thing, then then God's going to do it. And so that's that's the first half, my experience. That's kind of where I'm coming from uh, and a, a summary of some of the things that I've experienced along the way. And so what I want to do with the second half is just talk about what I've learned um, in, I guess, 13 years now of ministry and growing up in the church and specifically the church that I have, where there's there's kind of a built-in, like I said, there's a built-in expectation uh, for God to move in these kinds of ways. Um, but the first thing that I'll say is, in terms of what I've learned, I've learned that we need to know what revival really is and speak about it, and pray for it, and desire it. And I guess that may sound really obvious or uh, 
like stating the obvious, but but I guess that's just again something that I've taken for granted growing up in the in the context that I have, and and as I've traveled around a little bit and met people outside of Calvary Chapel churches and listened to people, I've I've realized that 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 expectation is not built into a lot of uh, people's experience with the Lord that that we want to see God do a reviving work. And so often where it is talked about, it's it's not what I think we mean by revival or what we're learning at a conference like this revival is. Um, it's not it's not a meeting again that we hold. Hey, we're going to have a revival from this time to that time. And and uh, it, it's it's not what so many people think it is. Um, and and we've we've been given a great definition here uh, for this conference, right? The one that uh, has been mentioned of Tim Keller. I want to read to you uh, another way of defining revival. This is from uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, and uh, it's a fairly lengthy quote. So just hang in there. But I think it's it, it's worth the wait. So um, here's what here's what he had to say about revival. He said, "Quote." He said, quote, you cannot revive something that has never had life. So revival by definition is first of all an enlivening and quickening and awakening of lethargic, sleeping, almost moribund church members. Suddenly the power of the Spirit comes upon them and they are brought into a new and more profound awareness of the truths that they had previously held intellectually and perhaps at a deeper level too. They are humbled. They are convicted of sin. They are terrified at themselves. Many of them feel that they have never been Christians. And then they come to see the great salvation of God in all its glory and to feel its power. And then, as a result of their quickening and enlivening, they begin to pray. New power comes into the preaching of the ministers. And the result of this is that large numbers who were previously outside the church are converted and brought in. And so he summarizes this way. The two main characteristics of revival are first, this extraordinary enlivening of the members of the church. And second, the conversion of masses of people who hitherto have been outside in indifference and sin. Great definition, I think, uh, lengthy definition. Keller's is much more succinct and memorable. But, but I love uh, what Lloyd-Jones says in terms of setting our expectations. What are we asking God to do? We're asking him to wake us up and make us alive to him and to what he said and what he's promised to do uh, as we were encouraged in the last session to pray with expectation. And so first, the, the church is sort of woken up, raised from its slumber, and then as such it, it becomes active in reaching out and seeing the fruit of those evangelistic efforts, large numbers of people coming to Christ. Those two things in combination really constitute a revival, and that's what we want to ask the Lord to do. But Lloyd-Jones, he goes on to argue that that around 1860 or 1870, uh, there was a great change in people's outlook. And here's what he says. He says, quote, before that, that is 1860 or 70, we find that people thought in terms of revival. And we hear of frequent revivals in the history of the church. But after that, revivals became rather exceptional phenomenon. But now, I believe we've reached an age in which the vast majority of church members 
have almost ceased to think in terms of revival at all. Up until 1860, it was the instinctive thing to think in terms of revival. And so I think uh, Lloyd-Jones is pointing out something that's important, and that is out in front of us, when it comes to the subject of revival, out in front of us as a vision, as as something that we're longing and desiring to see the Lord do, particularly when you're working in a hard place where, where the soil is hard. You need to keep that vision out in front of you because it can be so discouraging, right? It can be so uh, sometimes lonely. And to, to keep out in front of us that vision in the distance and ask the Lord to to do that work of revival. We need, to, we need to talk about it, pray about it, and for it, and desire it, and not give up on that vision because it tarries or because we haven't seen it uh, to this point despite all of our efforts. So that's one thing I've learned. We need to know what revival is. Speak of it, pray for it, desire it. Keep that vision out in front of us. The second thing that I've learned is that we need to have a definition of success in ministry that will sustain us as we wait for revival. So how do you advance the gospel in hard soil? You, you have to have a definition of success for what God's called you to do that can sustain you through the difficult times and through the times where there seems to be no evidence of God's work. Um, there's a great temptation, by the way, to confuse these two ideas. That is, there's a great temptation to confuse revival with the definition of success in ministry. In other words, there's a great temptation to think, if you're doing ministry right, there will be revival. It's inevitable. It's automatic. If you're getting the formula right, if you're checking the boxes, if you're going through the hoops, if you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, then you should see revival. That's, I think, not true. I don't think you can make that case biblically, and the majority of us would have at least have to admit we can't make that case from our own experience. And the danger, the trap that you can start to see in that is that Man, you can get really discouraged because you keep combing back through. What am I doing wrong? What am I leaving out? What am I not getting? And pretty soon you've got yourself so far beaten down because the whole thing seems to be relying on your shoulders. I want to see revival. Success in ministry equals revival. So what am I doing wrong? What's the problem? Why am I not seeing it? I think that where we go in our Bibles to um, really be encouraged along these lines is the prophets. And I think you can just read about any of the prophets, minor prophets, major prophets, and you would find encouragement along these lines. I think of Isaiah, uh, who was living under King Uzziah. Uh, you remember King Uzziah was just one of eight good kings in all of Israel's history. And Uzziah was a king who made great contributions economically, spiritually, and many other ways. And he was so highly esteemed. He ruled for 51 years in Israel. They enjoyed uh, the blessing of Uzziah's reign. And, and um, he was so, so highly esteemed by those in Israel that even though he had leprosy, he was buried still with the other kings. And so 
when Uzziah dies, right, this is the pivot point in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and it was referenced in uh, Dr. Carson's session. Um, But when Uzziah dies, Isaiah, along with really the rest of Israel, is um, just completely undone. It just hits him like a ton of bricks. What are we going to do now? We've enjoyed the stability and the security of Uzziah's reign for so long, and, and now things are so uncertain. And in the midst of that, God gives Isaiah a vision of himself seated on the throne, right? It's, it's a beautiful picture because the throne in Israel is empty. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen, but God shows Isaiah the throne behind the throne and seated on the throne is the Lord himself and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And so Isaiah sees, he's, he's comforted, right, by this vision that there's one on the throne behind every throne, above every throne, and that throne's never empty. God is sovereign. He is seated uh, in that place of authority and, and there's nothing that's escaping uh, his plan and purpose. And so, but in the midst of that vision, you remember that God breaks the news to Isaiah that his faithfulness in ministry would not translate into any great signs of visible success. In other words, Isaiah was not going to be called on to lead a revival in Israel. Isaiah was not going to be called on to have a ministry that would become uh, surrounded with great popularity. In fact, Isaiah's ministry was going to be used by God to make people responsible for the judgment that was coming. And so I think when you look at Isaiah, when you look at Jeremiah, when you look at any of the prophets and you see what God called them to do, you begin to understand that in this similar way with us, when we're dealing with hard soil or a difficult place to minister, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, visible results, we need to understand that our definition of success in ministry has to be biblical and not borrowed. And we need to have a vision, a definition of success that is able to sustain the likes of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, whom God has called even when they lack numbers, even when they lack lots of resources, even when they lack money or notoriety. And I think, just in a word, without getting too far into that, I think if there's one word that really defines success in a biblical way in terms of ministry, it's faithfulness, isn't it? that the words that that we're waiting to hear um, when we've run this race, when we finish this fight, is what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That really, truly has to be the definition of success for us. You know, I've told my church many times, if the Lord gives me the desire of my heart, because this is true, I hope to be at this church for the rest of my life and to serve faithfully. For there not to be a scandal, Lord willing, for me not to blow up the church with some foolish immorality, and for me to just be able to be given the opportunity to spend my life at that one place in faithfulness to the Lord's calling. And and whether it's there or whether the Lord calls us on, none of us knows, but we do know this, that true success in ministry has to be faithfulness. And let me just also say this and and then move on. Faithfulness is different than endurance, isn't it? 
And I'll say this to those of you that, that serve in places that are characterized by a hard soil. Um, you know, I'm on two bunny trails at the same time right now, but um, Sonoma County is one of the least churched counties in all of the United States. Um, it's just north of Marin County, which if you know anything about Marin County should tell you how crazy Sonoma County is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a hard place to minister. There aren't, there aren't big churches. I've watched just in the, the short time that I've been pastoring there, a lot of turnover in a lot of churches with a lot of pastors. It's, it's a discouraging place sometimes to be. Um, but when it comes to defining success in ministry in a difficult place and using that word faithfulness, I think that we would want to see that that's different than endurance. I think faithfulness involves endurance, doesn't it? Endurance is a part of faithfulness. And, and the book of Hebrews says over and over, you need endurance. That's for sure. But I guess, I guess what I would want to encourage you with is that um, faithfulness in ministry is different than in just enduring ministry. Uh, white knuckling it, if you would, just trying to make it to the end, even though you're miserable and everybody's miserable and everything is miserable. I, I don't necessarily think that um, that's what God has in mind when he calls us to faithfulness. And so uh, I think the biggest thing when it comes to thinking about being faithful in difficult territory is that we can't allow the condition of things around us to turn us inward. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to think, well, we're not seeing a lot of results. People don't really seem that interested. There's doesn't seem to really be any way in to reach uh, because it's just so marginalized and so pushed aside. And, and so we can just sort of turn inward. And, and I would just encourage you, we were made for this. We were called for this. Um, and the Lord certainly uh, is faithful, isn't he? Even... His word says when we're faithless, he remains faithful still. And so as we remember that, I would encourage you to just remember, and I don't think that I'm telling anything you don't know, but just remember that the definition of success for us in ministry is to be faithful. The last thing, and and I'll end with this thought, um, I'll develop it a little too, so don't get too excited. We're not going to end yet. But um, the last thing that I've learned is as we wait, right, so having a definition, an understanding, a vision for revival out in front of us. Lord, this is what we're longing for. This is what we would love to see you do. Um, and then having a definition of success underneath us, a place to firmly plant our feet and not be uh, constantly knocked down with discouragement. I think in our hand, um, what I would encourage is that as we wait uh, faithful in ministry, longing for revival. Um, in our hand, I think we would want to hold on to the desire um, to both see and experience a genuine outpouring of the Spirit of God. Um, I guess the way that I would say it is this, we can't let the discouragement that comes from deferred hope, right? It says in Proverbs that, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think, I think there's a lot of people in ministry and that, that minister in difficult places that have a, could be diagnosed with that heart sickness of just 
hoping and hoping that something will change or something will happen and not seeing it the way they've hoped. But, but in the midst of that discouragement that comes from deferred hope, that we wouldn't abandon this desire to see and experience a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, let me just quote John Piper here for a second because he's been so helpful for me along these lines. Um, because I think, honestly, there was a time for me in ministry where, you know, after the, the kooky stuff, and then after torching my entire church with the 11 days of extraordinary prayer, I thought, you know, that's okay, never mind. We'll just forget that stuff and just kind of put our head down and grind it out to the very end. And... um it was almost like the, the the feeling part of my walk with God and just who I am as a person. I just shut it off. It was too it was too painful to go there. Um, and and so John Piper was who the Lord brought into my life through his books. I don't know the man, but I'm very thankful for his ministry um, to to help me recover that idea that that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that, that whole idea, right, of Christian hedonism, that, that uh, our feeling and our satisfaction and our joy and uh, all of those kinds of things in the Lord are not disconnected um, from a true walk with the Lord. But here's what he says. Uh, it's actually from Desiring God and then another quote from one of the sermons. He says, There's a connection between the feeling of the soul and the sensations of the body. That's owing, as Jonathan Edwards says, to the laws of union which the Creator has fixed between the soul and the body. In other words, heartfelt gratitude can make you cry. Fear of God can make you tremble. The crying and the trembling are in themselves insignificant. But the gratitude and the fear are not optional in the Christian life. And yet those are what most people call feelings. That's the peril of the slogan, and he's in that chapter dealing with the slogan, uh, fact, faith, and feeling. And a lot of you have probably heard that address before. But he says, the final part of this quote, it seems, that is our feelings, it seems to make optional what the Bible makes essential. Uh, he often refers to David in the Psalms who commands how we ought to feel. Delight yourself in the Lord. And we ought to feel that delight in our hearts. Well, he goes on in, in a sermon of his entitled How to Receive the Gift of the Holy Spirit to say this, quote, It is right to stress the experiential reality of receiving the Spirit. When you read the New Testament honestly, you can't help but get the impression of a big difference from a lot of contemporary Christian experiences. For them, that is the believers in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. For many Christians today, it is a fact of doctrine. Surely the charismatic renewal has something to teach us here. In sacramental churches, the gift of the Holy Spirit is virtually equated with the event of water baptism. In Protestant evangelicalism, it is equated with a subconscious work of God. In regeneration, which you only know you have because the Bible says you do if you believe. It's easy to imagine a spiritual counselor saying to a new convert today, don't expect to notice anything different. Just believe you have received the Spirit. 
But that is far from what we see in the New Testament. The Pentecostals are right to stress the experience of being baptized in the Spirit. Close quote. That's a Baptist preacher saying that the Pentecostals are right in something. We ought to at least think about it. And essentially what, what Piper's saying there, and what I want to encourage you and myself in, is that we ought not to let go of a hope and a desire to see God's Spirit poured out upon us in a way that we would experience it and know it. Because even in what we were encouraged in this last session to pray with expectation, they experienced something, didn't they? It wasn't just a subconscious thing that they just thought, oh, well, well, we believe it, so it must be true. The place shook. And it was an experience that, that they had that, that they wouldn't forget that would leave an, an indelible mark on them. And, and true, one of the things that you read when you read through Acts is that those experiences never really repeated, did they? They, they, were, they were always unique. You couldn't formulate them. And as Piper says, it's the, the shaking wasn't the spiritually significant part. The, the speaking in tongues or the different outworkings and experiences that they had, those weren't necessarily the important part. But, but the part that we can't let go of is that they experienced something that they knew they experienced. They would have sat there and realized something just happened to me. Something just happened here. That's undeniable. And I guess I just want to encourage you and I want to encourage myself again when we think of advancing the gospel in hard soil and holding on to um, a desire for revival. I guess I would want to encourage us to never let go of, of a hope and a sincere desire to experience that kind of powerful outpouring of God's Spirit. To not dismiss the possibility of that happening. I think those experiences are certainly extraordinary. They're unique. They're not normative necessarily. But if we can build on a strong foundation of our successes being defined by faithfulness, then I think it's possible for us to not lose heart as we wait and as we continue to ask, God, would you work? Would you bring revival? Would you pour out your spirit upon us in power so that we might see it, so that we might experience it, so that we might know that we've had the privilege of seeing you work in this way to the praise of your glory? Pray with faith that God can and that he will, and that he has, and that he will once more. I want to close, uh, really close now with just a story, um, or I guess an illustration of some sorts, and then I, then I want to read uh, a passage from Isaiah, just almost as a prayer, to close out our time uh, this afternoon. But... Um, There's a farm in Petaluma, just not far from my house, called the Green String Farm. And um, 
it's a kind of a community farm. It's a it's some sort of business model where you can go and you can sort of buy into this thing and you can plant things there and you can be a part of uh, raising the crops or taking care of them. And then you also get to either buy the vegetables or get a certain amount if you're a part of it. And um, I was thinking about this farm as sort of an illustration of what, what would this all look like Um in ministry, if, if if we sort of walked in the tension of keeping revival out in front of us as a vision and making sure we have a biblical definition of success underneath us and holding on to that desire all the while to see God work in a powerful what, what, what would that look like? And I, I thought of the green string farm. Why? Because the green string farm is is kind of a mess if you look at it. They don't plant things in perfect rows. There's weeds all over the place. There's junk growing down the rows where the stuff that they're actually trying to grow is growing. And, and the reason is because uh, they want to grow what they grow in a sustainable way. They have this slogan, 50% for nature and 50% for humans. And what they've discovered or the paradigm that they're working off is that when you when you plant the land in a certain way and when you when you use pesticides to kill off every last living thing except the plant, and when you keep everything in perfect rows, what it, what it does is it destroys the sustainability of that ground. And what they want to do is they want to work with nature um, to produce food in a very sustainable way. So they, they let the weeds grow. If they start to threaten the the plants, they cut them back just enough so they're not threatening. They let uh, there be a ground cover because it, it, it enriches the soil and strengthens the soil for the plants that they want to grow. And I don't know if this will make any sense to you, um, but I guess for me, in a sense, that's that's kind of a vision for for ministry where the soil is hard, for how to advance the gospel in a different place. I, I think it'd be kind of a mess, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I think it would be something that other people might come in and look at and say, this is kind of like scraggly and what's the deal with what's going on here? But I think that in some ways it might illustrate the way that God would call us to minister in those kinds of places so that so that what we're doing is actually sustainable, so that we don't just move on to somewhere that's cleaner and more productive and that looks better from the outside. Is this making any sense? I'm not even sure it makes sense to me, so it's okay. if <laughs> This isn't in my notes. This is an add-on. So we can just edit the tape at this part. But I guess for me, that, that little farm on the outskirts of Petaluma has kind of just become an illustration of what it looks like to advance the gospel in hard soil. You know, they, they realized when they planted that uh, initially that, that the soil in Petaluma is... is in that part anyways, was was terribly destroyed because um, there were cows that were raised there and the cows had stomped the soil down so much that it was so compacted that it wasn't healthy. And so the way to make the soil healthy again is to dig it up and work it and put a lot of air and nutrients back into it and then also to use this methodology that they're working with. And so um, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I think... uh, as we wait for revival and as we ask for the Lord to do a work, sometimes I think that 
we have a vision of what ministry would look like that, that really isn't sustainable, that really isn't realistic or even altogether that healthy. And so I pray that God would give us uh, each a vision for where he has us. And uh, this this would be my prayer. If we could just bow our heads and um, maybe just take a moment to pause. Lord, I know for me that to come to something like this is just, it's such a privilege, Lord. There is such good, solid truth that is being um, delivered, the truth of your word. And, and yet, Lord, there's also times where it can just feel like it's just an overload of good information. And so, Lord, I I pray that even right now, as we just pause, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would just be at work applying the things that we're hearing, that we would give you room and opportunity to sink and apply those things uh, home to our hearts that you're wanting us to really hear and hold on to. Lord, I, I would even be so bold to ask that even right now in just a quiet moment that that you would allow us the opportunity to experience your presence, Lord, just you drawing near to us and and touching us. Lord, I especially would pray for anyone that is in this workshop that is discouraged, who have been giving it everything that they that they have to advance the gospel in a difficult place, and maybe they've come here just so thoroughly discouraged. And Lord, on the one hand, it's encouraging to be in a big room full of a pretty decent-sized group of Christians. But Lord, I, I know the trap. I know, I know that even while we sit here, we can begin to compare ourselves. We can fall into it so easily. Are you using my life like you're using these people's lives? Are Are you using my church like you're using this church? Lord, would you just free us from that? And Lord, would you comfort us by even pouring out your Spirit upon us? Because, Lord, your word 
Jesus, you said that the Spirit would come, that you would send the Spirit as a comforter, that would guide us into the truth. Lord, as we seek to be faithful, we, we want to never lose that desire and that vision out in front of us, that desire in our hands, Lord, to see you do a reviving work. We're going to continue to ask, Lord, even in our little churches, even in our little corners of the world, Lord, we want to never lose heart, to never lose hope, that you might do a reviving work and that you might do it in our day so that we might enjoy the blessing of seeing it with our own eyes. We just commit that desire to you, Lord. It's true, it's where we all started, but Lord, some of us have been doing this long enough and have been beaten down enough that we're, we're almost afraid to even ask that. But Lord, maybe here we could encourage each other. And maybe here, Lord, you would encourage us just with the gentle but strong work of your spirit in our lives. Lord, we pray just as Isaiah prayed, who was called to minister in a difficult place at a difficult time. Lord, this is our prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people. Held possession for a little while, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence from of old, No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been for a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. 
and our iniquities like the wind take us away, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And we are all the work of your hand. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege to share with you guys.